Anytime I get the opportunity to talk to the Blessed Madonna, a.k.a. Maria, we have a great conversation. Uh, it used to happen on airplanes or backstage. We get into arguments over music, over philosophy, over politics, and it's always entertaining. This time, I was lucky enough to sit down with Maria for the new edition of Last Party on Earth. We got to talk about rave in the 90s. We get pretty into that. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting anecdotes about scumbag promoters and biohazard and the Midwestern United States. It's quite unique perspective Maria has. Uh, we talk about records, philosophy of DJing, and there's some great exploration of yeah, really what it means to develop a night, to progress in energy levels. These are things that Maria is really, really, really good not only at doing, but at talking about it. We go all over the place. We talk about the Go-Go's, Kentucky, uh, guitars, production, funk, James Brown, Teddy Pendergrass, Liza Minnelli. And I also loved, with respect to her and her the new album she's working on, we really got to talk about ambition in music, uh, ambition in collaboration. How do you really make a big dance anthem. What is it? What are all the elements that go into these Stone Cold classics? Uh, it was a pleasure. Stick around. This is the Blessed Madonna on Last Party on Earth. Last, last party, party on Earth. Maria, let's do this. Welcome to the show. I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to talk to you. Uh, as I mentioned just really briefly, uh, there's a little, ad I would always be excited to talk to you, but there's a little added thrill lately of conversations and just basically staying human and staying in touch with your friends. And so I, I really look forward to these conversations and with you particularly, we always end up having great conversations. I think we share a, a lot of the same, uh, tastes in music and ideas and things. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I was, uh, I, I had literally forgotten that we were doing this today, but you came up in conversation at lunch because I had my first in-person lunch with our shared manager. Some, for some reason you came up and I said, you know, I, I always love to talk to Tika. I was, I was like, we're very different, but there's some, there we have, we share a lot in common. I think we're more like than people would ever realize in any kind of external way. Definitely. There's a little nugget of recognition in you that, uh, that I always enjoy. I always enjoy seeing myself reflected. <laughs> and like the, the reflection so, percentage is sufficiently high for you to enjoy talking to me. The, the, the pleasure is truly all mine. <laughs> Okay, so to begin with, let's just start with, I mean, again, and not, not to get too much into, you know, how we've all been living in this crazy year and stuff, but but how are you and what are you up to? I believe you're working on a record. I am. Yeah, I actually do not have guitars hanging on the wall in my home. It's like a straight VH1 behind the music, like fake. It's like made of cardboard. They just gave you a studio. <laughs> <laughs> like Bono's about to make a comment on it. That's it. That's right. Nick Rhodes is going to be uh, after the cut. Uh, yeah, I am working on my album. I, I have signed uh, my first album to Warner Brothers, and it is going swimmingly well. And I am here in Noah Tune Studios in uh, London, which is right by London Fields and is a fantastic studio. I would say that for as sort of patently shitty as a pandemic is i managed to flip it into mainly a positive and 
just really did the thing that I think everybody said that they were going to like, well, I'm going to go into the studio and I'm going to do a bunch of stuff. And then of course, a bunch of around the house projects, like I'm going to clean this closet and fix the store and whatever. I did about half of those things, but the studio thing I really did do. I watched every, every tutorial that I had been meaning to watch and read the, read the books and did all of that stuff and just spent an enormous amount of time in my studio alone and uh, made one remix album for Dua Lipa and wrote the bulk of the second version of this album. It's been amazing because uh, I have gained new skills, not only as a producer and engineer, but as a writer. And I've been writing with other people and for other people, which is a whole new world. Love it. Without getting into too much detail, I know in my own life, uh, hands down, the best feeling in the world was that when you're deep in the cocoon of studio with your friends and your partners and yes. you're, you're living out, it, nothing's really intellectual anymore. It's not even really about taste or it, it's you're living out these creative puzzles with a team and, and you're, that's and it. You're, creative puzzles. That's exactly it. So, um, What's the first record that you ever bought with your own money? Uh, the first record that I ever bought with my own money, I mean, I guess as much as any child has their own money. Uh, I bought a 45 of Head Over Heels by the Go-Go's. Yes. <laughs> which is a stone cold banger. <laughs> It is uh, when it goes into that little break. It's got this little sort of dance. It's a great record, and I loved them when I was little. And I mean, the I I think that one barely beats out Thriller. I think I got it right before Thriller, uh, but they would have been contemporaneous with one another. I also I remember requesting Thriller. Uh, that I really, I wanted it. And that's, but that's every kid ever in America. But it would have come from a, from a store called Maloney's in Jackson, Kentucky, uh, in Eastern Kentucky, Appalachia. Did you go with, you went with your parents or friends? My grandparents, because I, I lived with them a lot of the time. Uh, I would, I lived at my grandparents, well, I lived in Jackson all the time until I was almost three. And then I was there for probably, a, you know, a quarter uh, of the year, the rest of the time. My grandparents were very involved in my life at a kind of semi-parental level. So when you buy the Go-Go's record and the video, for those who don't know, that's Belinda Carlisle. Peak so 80s. Peak 80s. I mean, she's... So good, all those fast cuts. And doing like Molly Ringwald dancing. The multi-screen. The, the, the big yeah, sweater. Like the big... I think oh, she's wearing like a... off the shoulder. Exactly. No off bra. shoulder, thick, yeah, it's great. big sweater. When you saw that in your kid, did you did you want to be like them? Did oh, you, yeah, totally. Okay, okay. Well, okay. I did play guitar from the age of like maybe six or seven on... And I went to school for it. I went to a, to a magnet art school after we moved to Lexington called SCAPA. And I studied composition, although I can't read sheet music hardly at all. Can, but you can play uh, guitar. Mm -hmm, oh, yeah. that's good. Not super well, but well enough. Well enough to I write on? 
Like, like, yeah, would you? Not probably not at this point, but I did at the time. <laughs> There's one right behind you. If you just wanna, I could just like break out into like, uh, into like House of the Rising Sun or something, you know. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I play uh, not as well as my dad would have liked me to. He really, in his mind. Uh, that would have been my instrument, and I was given many guitars many times <laughs> over the years, and um, never really loved it. But when I was about six, I was given my first little synthesizer. I had a little, the little tiny white Casio thing. Uh, then I later got another one that had a little sampler in it. It had little sample pads. So your dad was pushing you musically or supporting you musically? Well, the, the keyboards came from my grandparents. My dad was pushing the guitar. If you want to like understand my family in a nutshell, that's probably a good analogy. Dad pushing the guitar, grandparents on the cutting edge. Everything came around in the end. But uh, What about musically? Is there like tension in you between those worlds? Absolutely. Oh, my dad... Hated that I was into dance music. Hated. Really? Oh, oh my God. I was banned Why? from going to raves. When did DJing and or raves enter your universe? So I started going to raves when I was 14 years old, um, when I was in middle, middle school, 1991. I have it marked on my calendar so that I remember the anniversary every year. It's called Sonic, the party. The names are amazing. It's always like Solstice, Sonic. Yeah, well, this was Sonic as in the Hedgehog. Oh, yeah, and he was on the flyer, for sure. And also projected. You could play Sonic on... That's around the, that's around the time I remember all my parties were Lawnmower Man. Remember him? Oh, right, because it had the <laughs> virtual reality. Exactly, everything. Yeah, <laughs> everything looked like a fucking Kai's Power Tools ad. It was really rough. When you started going to raves, was it... Did it go hand in hand with DJing? Like, had you already thought about DJing or you're a hundred percent as a clubber, as a, as a party goer? 100% as a clubber, period. Like, well, not clubbers, but I didn't, they wouldn't let me in the clubs. There was these shirts that had the, you know, the raid bug spray, it said, but it said rave kills clubs dead. So you're a 14 raver, you have the clothes, fresh oh, dry pants, the whole, oh, the, sock all on the your stuff. head. Oh yeah. Laminates around your neck. Oh my God. Laminates for days. Platform shoes. For sure. The Fluvogs with the black and white stripes. Fluvogs. He's Canadian. You know that? <laughs> so I have some, I have some vague connection to, I had Fluvogs too. I had the Fluvog. They, they looked like, sort of like a sneaker and they had the stacks, but then also people would have those made. There were a lot of confused shoemakers who uh, were used to doing alterations on shoes for people who had club like a feet. club foot yeah totally that's what it was literally you would go to the guy <laughs> who made prosthetic <laughs> shoes for people exactly it's, these kids they don't know the, the struggle they just go out there and they get them he's like is one of your legs three inches shorter than the other i'm like no <laughs> no just, there i would like both of my legs to be eight stacks taller so when you went to your first rave were you instantly just yes. in love? Yeah. Yeah. And I knew that I would be because I had very briefly lived in a little town called Murfreesboro, Tennessee, um, which I hated with every fiber of my being in in my, uh, I guess, my last year of middle school so badly that I begged to go move back to Lexington with my dad. My parents had split up. My dad was in Lexington and my mom and my stepdad were in Murfreesboro. And so I went back to Kentucky and, you know, 
uh, as you are a Midwest person, um, not not but Midwest doesn't even mean a region. This is something people don't no, understand. Midwest is a loose affiliation <laughs> of cities going from Canada down to Tennessee. And, you know, it's like it's like Dayton, Louisville, Chicago, Milwaukee, Minnesota, Toronto, Nashville, Memphis, St. Louis, Cleveland. Like it's this weird belt that has not it's not even in the West. It's the it's the rust belt. I always felt my my contact with people and parties from there. I always thought just freaks. And cool and just weird, the best kind of weird. There's no question. The weirdest people because, you know. Well, okay. So in the beginning, we talked about us having some core similarities and then some some differences. So the rave, the rave experience, the, the, the real kind of Midwestern and Montreal had a lot of similarities. That rave foundation, I think it's really similar. And it's not something I can talk about with everybody. We've already talked about that. But one thing I want to ask you is, is like the rave spirit, like a lot of what you felt probably when you were 14, you know, the, the, the unity, the excitement, there's like the scene, like it was the only time in my life I ever waved any kind of flag. It was the only time in my life where I ever felt like, okay, this is a part of a crew I I believe in. Now in my own life, by the time I got to be like a DJ or traveling or famous in any capacity, I had totally, I don't know why, ditched any sense of community. I was just at that point, just like, it's me, like me and my ideas are. But with you, I feel like you, a lot of those, can we say plur? Is that, is that like... Plur? Is that, that was such remember? a con- no. I know you just said that in the most. Oh, did I say it? You Canadiana said it in the most right Canadian way I've ever heard. You see, <laughs> what's the right way to As say it? Was your, it was your nom de plure. <laughs> that was great. P L U R. P L U R. Plure. So, like a lot of those ideals, I see like you held on to them, or it seemed like you held on to them for a while or integrated some of it into your, into your shows, into your. I'm into... just actually like that. This is the. Okay. You're just like that. Oh, totally. I'm like. I, I, I didn't mean it in like a. No, like, no, no. Like I understand. As if it's a decision or a strategic thing. I guess it was more like in your own life, trace those, those rave ideals. If how it interacted with your life and career. I was already in. I mean, I think a lot of it is just who I am as a person and like, especially what my mom was like or is like. Um, And my grandparents, my mom's parents were um, educators, but also uh, civil rights activists during Jim Crow. Okay. And my grandfather was a minister and he had like a, he had an integrated church and he was eventually fired from his job for protesting Jim Crow laws in the in the late 50s and, uh, you know, beat up by the Klan and uh, not bad. He just got his butt kicked, like literally his ass physically kicked. Um, but they were real community oriented in, in that house because it was always full of his students. It was always full of. I don't know. I just grew up in, and then my parents were part of this arts collective called Apple Shop, um, which is an Appalachian arts collective. And my mom and my stepdad and their family 
and my dad also all super lefty Democrats, like deep in the party, big like labor movement, you know, like. Okay, so this all this all makes a lot more sense. I am exactly like everyone in my family, which is that we are aggressively leftist or liberal. I I don't know what liberal is a bad word now, but no, no, but uh, I I know, you know, you know what I mean? Like I like my like my grandma went to like like pride marches and shit mm-hmm. like it's so all so of that yeah, that's so for, totally normal okay so for you rave was th- that part of it that sense of community and acceptance and those things it just fit right into your upbringing and how you felt that's about right. things and 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 if anything just yeah it just made complete sense and also i mean to grow up as the kid of a musician i mean i was used to being in the van like mm-hmm. i used to sell records for my dad at his shows it was a real it was a real short hop to mixtapes. And my my mom and my stepdad, um, they love dance music. So I'm I am very much a product of my environment. That makes sense because for me, peace, love, unity, that was just like a phase. And then I went back to being myself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh. yeah, that was awesome. But now I'm back to no, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, so like how much of that stuff do you think lives on? Like how much, like the, some who? of those feel, <laughs> no, well, no, in the environments, like when you, is it something that just is always there? Is it still really strong? There is a kind of once in a lifetime purity and optimism that happens at the beginning of musical scenes that is yeah temporary and beautiful. And it will happen again in other places and in other even rebirths of electronic music. I'm, I'm not saying that 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 which will have many births over and mm. over and over again. Um, the rave scene from the you know late '80s, early '90s will never be will never happen again. But some other version of it will happen. It's happening somewhere, and we're just old and cool, and we don't know it. Kids, kids are kids are built for hope, and yeah. and and yeah. and look, uh, I mean, maybe maybe what that looks like is different now, because all of that sort of peace and sunshine and daisies, it was a nice feeling, but it wasn't realistic. Not because of the the party goers, but necessarily, I mean, some people, but, you know, when I look back at, like I said, you know, the a lot of the people throwing those parties, some of the worst people I've ever known in my life were, were, were underground rave promoters who were in charge of all of this vibe oh and plur and whatever. Dodgiest. Very few of those people <laughs> turned out to be good people. And I don't even mean that in a. I don't even mean that in a like everybody's, everyone's flawed. I mean to say that there are a number of core rave promoters in the United States who are some of the worst people that I have ever met in my life. Scumbags. Period. And so. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I think the kids today are. There are a lot of really dodgy people like that. That whole it was. I remember that. I remember it being. Ex- I mean, crazy dodgy. Oh my loads, god. Loads of awful. And to say nothing of just and- how, how young women, aka children. 
Mm. You know, I was 14 when I started going to parties. It's crazy. And I had an adult boyfriend and nobody even blinked. And that mm. was just like par for the course. And the boyfriend was wearing one of those hats with the propellers on it? Uh, you know? No, uh, but kind of the, you know, the cap that kind of looked like like the condom reservoir tip thing, you know, the, the, the oh, yeah. a toque. Those are off. Yeah, we uh, had a lot of choices um, in fashion. I had a hat with the two hands on it. You ever seen that one? Oh, yeah. I had that one. Uh, I was like, yeah, I had the Mickey Mouse hand for actual <laughs> white. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think of anything like the kids today, the fact that they are more aware of the actual world that they're living in and and, and that they may not have that kind of blind optimism, but they may be better off for it and actually closer to what we were aiming for. So when did, when did DJing, when did the idea, when did you, do you remember when you first got the idea that you could make the jump from participant to kind of active involvement or being a DJ? I, I didn't really fully conceptualize it until I started college. Uh, and I had access to turntables. So you raved that? Were you were you going to parties that whole t period from yeah, fourteen yeah, yeah. to I, I, nineteen? I never or really, I never really have stopped. You've never stopped <laughs> until the pandemic. You never stopped. I, and that was it. That was that. The pandemic was my first my first real break. Even when I said I wasn't, I was. Um, I started college a little bit late at twenty, and. Uh, I. Uh, and were you doing I, drugs? In college, were, were, like no. no, no, through the rave period, uh, were you what, like a straight edge, or were you, or was regular drug intake? So when I was, uh, I didn't drink. I didn't drink at all until I was twenty-one. Uh, I I was very against alcohol, um, and I experimented a little bit with hallucinogenics when I was when I was quite young, like you know. 17, 18, 19. and then I I I had I had a little wobble before college. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I looked great. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, I, I gave up food for a couple of years. Not like, I mean, because I was partying. Uh, I, I was on the meal substitution plan. Uh, I was uh, quite thin and quite fast. Mm. And like speed. Something. Okay. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was the Midwest, it. In the, it's the Midwest in the 90s. I got it. Fill in the blanks. <laughs> Fill in the blanks. So I was hanging around with quite a rough crew there for a moment. Mm -hmm. And I started to really see people having consequences as things like speed and even harder, like dope and stuff, like crept in. Thank God I didn't get into like dope or anything like that. But mm -hmm. I knew people that did. And it really ruined their lives. And in in a lot of cases ended their lives. And so when I went to college, it was a full stop for me. I mean, I didn't even like, I like, I didn't even smoke pot. Like, so I went to college, I, I got into school and, um, I didn't have a lot of money. I had enough sort of college seed money to get through maybe the first year with my dad and my stepmom's help. And so I knew that I had to be really good and I had dropped out of high school. So by the time I got to college, I hadn't been in school since I was, I don't know, 15 years old or something. And when I got to college, I was like 
Were you 20. good at school? Like, did it come, was it, Oh yeah. it came easy? I loved college. Yeah. Yeah. 4.0 sailed through, through almost all of college with a perfect GPA and did well enough in my first year that they gave me a full ride. And, wow. um, so what were you, sorry, what were you studying in college? Like what's the, what was your, uh, English major, okay, English major, uh, literature, poetry, but <laughs> I also, majored in in being the general manager of the college radio station. Oh. And uh, my mom, one Thanksgiving, was at a sort of a uh, an antique sale at an antique shop and found a whole crate of records that had belonged to a, a an Ohio-based funk DJ at some point. <laughs> and, you know, and but it was like... Dope shit, like like you were that, DJing on the radio. Like hydraulic general manager. Like I was, I was, I was the general manager, and I was playing records on the radio. Well, not records. I was playing songs, but I was not DJing. Yeah. I didn't even have. I didn't have any records. Selecting. But you know what's weird is that people always gave me records as if I was a DJ because I was that asshole at the party who was like, "Wait, no, you have to hear this. Hold on." And I would, I would be really pushy. Hey, so you're a DJ. Right. That's and, DJ. Right. But I didn't know that at the time, and I did not. I could not visualize myself in that position. But I mean, I always have these massive wallets of CDs and everything and was very into like, you know, like Roy Ayers and things like that. Like I was always really into soul and disco and I would make people, I can remember, I can remember sitting at this house party once and just forcing a small group of people around me to, to listen to love sensation <laughs> Because I had just discovered it, like that. You, have, you haven't changed. I have not changed at all, and just <laughs> like wait, no, you have to hear this. You won't believe the bridge in this song, and and these people, just I, I don't know. They're still friends, so I guess they didn't judge me too poorly. To make a very long story short, we found a we found this crate of records that was sort of the Ark of the Covenant, and then it turned out that there were more records in a barn outside of Somerset, Kentucky, which is in the middle of nowhere. And we went and we bought all of them, hundreds, and um, amazing stuff in there, like Hydraulic Pump by P Funk All Stars. Which later gets sampled on that Orlando Vorn record. Uh, oh, uh, the pumping one, bass maneuvers. Uh, no, it's the one. It's uh, it's called. Oh, it's it's Orlando Vorn as Fix. Oh, Fix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was that on KMS? I think. Uh, uh yeah, it Flash. Flash. Yeah, yeah, the hard one. So the yeah, real hard mm -hmm. one. The the funny thing is that uh, and then dope computers on the other side. Oh, I played uh, dope computer. Yeah, and but but flash flash no kidding is just an edit of a P funk record, and mm. it doesn't it has almost nothing in it that's not in the original. It's 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 uh it's it's people don't realize it's it's completely a sample. Anyways, yeah. So we found that and. There was this kind of moment of realization that a lot of the records that I liked that house DJs played 
came from disco records and that suddenly I had those records. So when, do you remember your first gig? Yeah, it was called Bass Fetish. (laughs) 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 And the, the flyer, the flyer was a, was the cartridge from a turntable with a tongue coming out at it. Oh no, no. And then what was clearly insinuated to be a a little, a little little rope of cum. (laughs) It was so bad. Classy. It was so bad. And I was also terrible. So, but prior to your first gig, like what, what were you, were you practicing at home? Did you, I mean, was it in your mind where you're like, I'm going to be a DJ. This is a career path I want. Oh yeah. Once, once I figured out, so I accidentally mixed two records together. I'll call before I come and between the sheets by the Isley Brothers, which is an excellent mm. mix. And uh, I'll call before I come by Outcast. And once I realized that I did understand the mechanics of it, I started playing with all these things. Like I was like, like trying to mix Casanova Brown with something else. Once I under, once I realized that I do in fact grasp this as a concept i went completely nuts i had the keys to the studio and i could get in before it opened and stay after it closed and when we would go on break for spring break or easter or whatever uh this is the college radio station yeah for like okay i remember one day i practiced for like 12 hours wow and then i and then and then my boyfriend at the time he was he liked scratching and he had ordered one turntable so that, just one and a, and a, the little skinny vest axe mixer so that he could practice scratching and we we both really like to watch scratch videos like invisible scratch pickles and all that kind of stuff like i'm super into that and i'm not good at it but i like to watch it and i, I love a track and i like I, I i i i i fan on that world but i'm not i'm not good at it but the people that he ordered the turntable from accidentally sent him to <gasps> with no Jackpot. packing. That's all nope. the luck for your whole life in one moment. Nope. No packing slip. And then he gave up DJing and I got his turntables and I still have them. They're the, I've only ever had one pair. I've had them and he passed away, but I still have his turntables oh, and, and they're my lucky turntables. I've had them forever. They've been dropped down a flight of stairs. They're, they've got a gorilla's sticker on it that I got in college radio. So I had my own private dorm room and I put them in there and I got a, a mixer. And then it was really, it was like my whole dorm room just completely filled with records. Uh, Cause I had money from my scholarship and nothing to spend it on and so i i bought everything i mean i bought just thousands of records oh my god okay there's a lot to talk about first of all i didn't actually know so you're is it safe to say that your origin like musically you're really coming from funk disco was that your ground zero so the first album i ever owned in my life is speaking in tongues by talking heads 
Oh, that wow, that's a good first album to have. My Jesus. uncle John got me that. My uncle John was the shit. He's he remains the shit. He was he was very we were very tight and he was very invested in making sure that I had good taste in music and he did he did a great job. And my mom same thing. My mom w- loved Prince and Stevie Wonder and things like that. My dad was much more of a kind of rock and roll guy, which we we butted heads a lot on that. But we eventually kind of came around on James Brown and stuff. But the rave stuff, that was the, that was kind of, you know, that sort of sprang forth from the head of, of Zeus or something. I can't explain it. So, I mean, before there was rave stuff, before that existed, I definitely was into like, oh, it was always sort of funky, dance-oriented, whatever. But it could go as far as Talking Heads mm. and then to Stevie Wonder and whatever. Like, it was all over that. And I loved New Wave and I loved Michael Jackson and I loved... But it was always very dancey, always, even as a kid. And then when then when there was sort of the pop surge of dance music around 88, 89, 90, I got super into like Information Society, Black Box, um, all I of that. To, that was, I, lis- I listened to Information Society like this week. Oh, they're extremely dope. And I, really I loved all pretty. of that. I loved all of that stuff. And so I can't say anything other than that there really is no starting point for me other than that I loved things that made you want to dance. Uh, which record made you want to make your own record? Uh, undoubtedly uh, Metro Area Mura, which I hold to be mm. a singular and perfect record. Um, I could yeah. have answered that for almost every question that you <laughs> showed me, and I probably have have mentioned it in interviews enough time that uh those guys for sure think i'm creepy well it's a it's a i mean it's a killer record there's no question perfect it's yeah well there's there's a Mm. Uh, don't not in this house (laughs) well no (laughs) well just for this well just look obviously you're talking talking about taste i remember i owned my record store when the record came out it was a massive record everyone loved it it was across the board i always loved i love the drums I love the feel. I love everything. I just drums are sampled. Probably, yeah, they must be. No, there's not so probably. They're sampled from Stars on Forty Five, that crazy disco uh, mega mix record. I don't know it. You're, you're going to be surprised when you listen to it. For me, it's just I, yeah. For me, when it goes to the boop 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 boop, like I, there's a yeah, it's like kind of soft, you know. Like I don't, I don't. Come on, dude. <laughs> Sorry, just, let's just skip it. Come on, let's skip it. It's what makes the world go round. It's what makes the. It, it's, well, I, it's, I, so I, I played. I played that at the first rave that came back here at the NHS test thing in Liverpool, and mm-hmm. I'm not kidding you. And, and at that point, I was so far past trying to figure out what would be a good thing to play or whatever. Blah blah blah. Like I was mm-hmm. just. I was like, what would I like to hear very loud? And I'm just going to completely enforce my will on all these punters and see what happens. I'm not kidding you. When I played Mira, a mosh pit broke out. Do you know what Mura is, by the way? It's a car. Yeah, it's a Lamborghini. I know, you love a car. 
<laughs> I don't even know how to drive a car. That's fine. I love cars, but I keep it like, you know, whatever. I, I, I get it. No, that, that's an incredible record. So uh, Metro Area is was Morgan Geist and Darshan, right? The, the, that's who it is, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Dar and they both know that I'm like creepy fangirl level. Uh, Darshan will, uh, he's actually sent me music personally. And so I know I've not completely terrified him i did see morgan guys standing at a party once and somebody was like oh i'm gonna introduce you to morgan and i was like i was so it's the one of the only times in my life that i've ever been truly starstruck and i was like oh no you can't introduce us i'm way too i've no that's so, so you know like i was djing and i like started forgetting how to dj and I was just so terrified because I I had internalized that record and that whole album and all the other things that they've done and that he's done so much that it would have been impossible for me to talk to him. And I'm telling you, and I've, and I've met famous people. I'm mainly very cool. The most famous person in the world is Morgan Geist. Wow. He did a remix for me of uh, Good as Gold, which I don't know if you've ever... But I, I, I want to say one thing important, especially <laughs> because I because I, I kind of made that face when you said it's a perfect record. I want to say what's more important is, and this is what I think... This is one of the things... This is why I think you're a really, really great DJ, um, is that... Go on. <laughs> go on. Um, well, it's... Do. this Because... And that's a good example. The fact that that record, which to me on the surface is, is almost a chill record. Like, like in some ways it, it's, you have to be patient and it unwinds brilliant pacing. But the fact that you can get from that record to a mosh pit in Liverpool, the, the, there's, that's where the magic is. Like the fact that that it's not, there's nothing obviously mosh pity about it. There's nothing obviously uh, wild about it, but, but to take a record. No, it's super restrained. It's, it's exactly. It's a, it's a, so to see, it's, it's an elegant to see, record. Exactly. To, but, but the, the magic power of a great DJ and you have it is to, is to see the wildness in, in the restraint, you know, is, is to, is to imagine, no, 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 that this tension coiled up here at the right time in the right place is going to produce something wild, you okay. know? And I don't drive sorry, cars, sorry, but sorry. I'm going to make a car analogy. Here we go. Go. You know how when you're speeding up and and you're in maybe second gear mm -hmm. and you feel <laughs> the engine getting louder and louder and you know that what you need to do is shift it into the next gear yeah. because and, and then things will operate. It will both be more um, efficient and there may be less noise and there may be, you know, it, but you're actually going faster. I think that the, choosing certain records with restraint, there is a kind of throttling down by mm. gearing up. Oh, yeah. And Mura is Mura is one of those records. It's like shifting from second into third. It oh, is yeah. faster. It's it's both faster, but it's cleaner and oh, quieter. Yeah. That's a very I like that's a really that's a really good analogy. So DJ, so in your, for your last set ever, or whatever that, whatever that means now. So what is your opening record? <laughs> Mini log, uh, the Move D remix, 
definitely what if I can you know what I have played that record That's a hard question uh, uh, no 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 I have played that record seven hundred trillion oh, times. Oh, did you look? You, did you look on Rekordbox or something like that? I, <laughs> I, I had to, I had to to look at the actual because it's like a long thing. Uh, here we go. Yeah, sorry, I never almost live, but definitely plugged. And I'm telling you, that is a great record. I didn't know the record, and I heard it when I saw your list. I listened quickly. It sounds great. You can play it real fast too, and it sounds super dope. Are you a good? Uh, are you a good starter? I'm a great starter. You are, eh? Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm an awful. I'm an awful starter. I'm excellent. That's my. That's my. That's my weakness. Off the when the when the when the gun goes, I'm like. I wasn't nah. any. I wasn't any good, and then I I saw Mr. Scruff open to close once at Smart Bar, and I was like, oh, I see how he did it. He treated it like a living room for the mm. first hour, um, and I used to hate to open, but then I I saw him do that, and then I started opening Panorama Bar occasionally, and I always loved that on Friday nights because you know people kind of come in the side next to where the DJ booth is, and. I, when I started thinking about it as like it's your living room and you're welcoming people to a party, that really helped. And then there's a moment when it becomes the other thing. But even in like a even in like a two hour festival set or like a ninety minute set, you still are you able to still yeah. look at it that way? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, assuming you can only pick one of your own tracks, which one do you play? Pr- probably my favorite record that I have. Well, that exists. There are more coming that maybe I would choose off the album, but um, I just finished a remix for the for the Chemical Brothers of their excellent new song, which is called "The Darkness That You Fear." It's my favorite Chem's record ever. I think it's the best thing they've ever done. Wow! It it's the original is already out. There's and it is an astonishingly good, rich, deep record that for me tapped the exact moment of what I I wanted to hear and I was so terrified and happy when they let me remix it and the parts were so so good um and it's the it's it's the kind of record that I not only wanted to make but that I want to play as well So what is your peak time selection, your peak time energy record? Oh, well, this this is a no-brainer for me. So I love James Brown. Uh, what I've chosen is I'm Satisfied by James Brown. And there's several great versions of it. Yes. There's a 12-inch version that is very long and very good. And there are just a couple of left turns in that record that 
blow my mind. Mm. Um, and I have a, a real memory of the first time I ever played it at, at a party. And it was this real banging house party. And this a friend of mine danced past me and was like, I am definitely satisfied. And just, it, you know, it's not a James Brown record that everybody knows. It's, uh, I think it's, 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 um, it's a, it's a mustache James, uh, era. There's, there's not mustache James and there's mustache James <laughs> and the mustache James period, which is very kind of, you know, like it's pre living in America, but it's post sex machine. Mm. And it, when James was kind of trying to dip his foot into disco but not quite and then he did eventually dip his foot all the way into disco like original disco man which is a terrible record there's some very bad ones but like i'm satisfied where's moses uh body heat all of that stuff those are great records and that's my favorite era of james brown and uh, i'm satisfied is like it is like a 10 out of 10 and the the shriek that james brown makes on that record i feel it in the bottom of my soul It might be my favorite choice. I've done these podcasts with like 30 people now. It might be my the single most excited I ever was to see something written as an answer. <laughs> First of all, yes, it's a 10 on 10. I mean, this is a 10 on 10 record. It, it's got yeah, 10 on 10. But what's crazy is so on Instagram, I, I'm not like a big, I'm not so big on social media, whatever. But at the very, very beginning of pandemic, I think day one or in such a beginning, it was so early on that it was like when people were counting the days, like, oh, I'm day six of lockdown or anyway, like, so this <laughs> feels, feels like 20 years ago. I, it, this is, it was my first day of quarantine and it was pretty like kind of trippy, you know, the whole world's falling apart and everything's changing and this weird kind of strange, a lot of strange stuff going on. And it was right when it was clear, like, I wasn't going anywhere for, for an indefinite amount of time and all the, everything canceled. You're just sure. where you are. And I felt quite a lot of excitement actually about that. Anyway, long story, slightly shorter. I put on that record, which was my favorite record that day. And I listened to it about 10 times and I danced, like just danced alone in my studio and I recorded it and I posted it to Instagram and I put day Did one. Did you? Yes. Like you can, you can. You can go look at this from whatever it is, March of last year. And I remember the little dancing period, but somehow that escaped my memory. Well, it is there and it is me dancing to I'm Satisfied of every record I had to dance to. And it was just, uh, so for me also just, I guess in that sense, it was also my peak time record. It was like, it's so, such a celebration record. It's just like, just unleashing power, you know? And anyway, James Brown and nothing to say, you know? Oh. It's those little stabs and it, it's like, oh my God, every time. Th that whole period, that's a great period mm -hmm. where James hasn't fully slid into trying to be on the disco trend, but he's kind of kicking it up a notch and getting in the zone. Mustache James. Mustache James. <laughs> um, highly underrated period of time for him. Highly underrated. The next question I had was... It's a record that makes you jealous because it's so good. What did I answer? You answered Digital Underground. 
Oh, yeah. Sons of the um, P. Sons of the P. Oh, I thought the it was a stra- makes- strange answer, but anyway. Oh, it's not. It's it's not a strange answer. Have you listened <laughs> to on. it? Go on. I have. Okay. First off, the story behind it is incredible. Okay. So at this point, George Clinton is like, he's in the shit, like deep. This is late '80s George Clinton. They said when he came into the studio that he looked like he'd been living under a bridge. Okay. Um, he could not be satisfied. <laughs> no at that point um and but that they had like so many other people kind of seen themselves as being in this lineage right that starts is, with is starts the p, with james brown is hmm? the p parliament in this yes it, it, okay 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 i had no idea some say So the lineage starts with James Brown. James identifies the concept of the one. He gives it to Bootsy. Bootsy leaves James and goes to link up with George Clinton and they make Parliament Funkadelic and gives George Clinton the concept of the one, which is that the emphasis in funk is always on the one. You may go bum 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 dun dun bum 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 dun bum bum one back. Boom. You hit it really hard. I'm satisfied. Great example. There is a record that is so deeply on the one, it uh, the one has been shattered into infinite pieces. <laughs> that record is so on the one that and that is the that is the secret that is that is the code to funk is that you you can start out bum 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 da 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 bum back so they in turn digital underground see themselves as being in that lineage they're the sons of the p and there are lots of people who i i, I think of it almost like a cult like the cult of the one people who get obsessed with this concept and you see it all over the place like Roger and Zap, whatever, like there is this kind of almost like a spiritual math hmm. that once you learn it about how funk works and what makes funk rhythmically different than other things and where it comes from and how it gets passed from person to person, that you, then you sort of enter that cult. It's, it's, it's almost like a numerological musical cult so sons of the p they that was their whole thing right shock g all of them they're obsessed with the one he's a guy who wears the the nose right he yeah yeah that's his alter ego okay yeah shock g is just the guy okay and then there's the humpty character Uh, oh yeah yeah. sorry humpty 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 is just a character that yeah i don't think i ever really got past humpty Oh, well, you should, because Digital <laughs> Underground is literally one of the most important 
like they are so essential. So they they make this album Sons of the P, which is a brilliant album from from nose to tail, and they get George Clinton out of wherever he is, whatever he's doing post Atomic Dog, nothing good, and get him into the studio. And he does that long intro. That you, that's him speaking on it, you know. Um, and he says the the line that just kills me. He says, he says, "So you've come from a long ways to go." That just that demolishes me. Like just that concept of 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 traveling from a, a far away place to come to this this thing. And the mm. whole song, "Sons of the P." You keep hearing that most of all, you know, most of all the funk, you know, like it's all this sort of, and the whole thing just moves like around. And there are all these little sort of spinning, repeated verses that come back around to each other. And also just the amazing production, the panning. It, I could, it's, it's like nine minutes long. Yeah. I could listen to it over and over and over again. Because it, it has all of that stuff in it. And there's a whole section of rap at that point that is falls under sort of like P-Funk 2.0. Uh, you could say Public Enemy, Digital Underground, even NWA, uh, uh, X-Clan. Like a lot of that real hardcore like Black Power rap. What uh, What is a record that has actually brought you to tears? Well... <laughs> What, what did I answer originally? It was uh, Gloria and Taylor. Oh, yes. Truly, truly, I have cried to that record. Okay, that's what, um, I, that's what I want. I want the real, you know. Gloria and Taylor. Love is a hurting thing. Mm. So I listened to that cute, one this morning. It's nice. It's pretty good. It's a good record. <laughs> good record. For a while, I think it was the most expensive record on Discogs. Oh, really? Which was... Oh. Which was I was just curious because that's why you cried. <laughs> like, I would have. <laughs> I caught it on the reissue. I was just curious. I was like, what, what, "What's the most expensive soul record on here?" What I don't remember exactly how it was ranked, but you know, some ridiculous sum of money before the reissue came out, and I was just so astonished by how good it is. Because usually, the things that kind of get hyped up on Discogs, it's kind of like. Oh, that's how you, that's how you actually found the record? By, yeah, I was by just curious. Price, I, I, well, somebody, had listed one of, somebody had listed one of my records for $5,000. So I wanted mm. to see what other trash was out there that people were putting enormous price tags on. And most of it was trash or it was like, oh, here's a, there's a Nirvana bootleg where Kurt farts or something. You know, it's like that kind of, that kind of thing. Or there was a misprint on Eleanor Rigby or, you know, yeah. whoever gives a shit about that kind of thing, it's, which is fine. Whatever. If you're the kind of person that gives a shit about that thing, then thumbs up. But I am not. But Gloria Ann Taylor, I put it on and uh, I found it on YouTube, a, a very lovely rip of it. And so that you could really hear it. And I was just, I mean, I just remember being so overwhelmed there's this part where she's like i want you to know that i know <laughs> and she's just howling and mm. the production is phenomenal the way there's some tape edits in it where it goes from these really super reverbed uh drums into a more into a more kind of like 
straight up groove. I mean, it's just the whole thing is just it's it's an aston. It's such a good record that I have only ever played it in public one time. Oh, I like those. They're they're like too good for the public. You can't just play that. Oh no, God no! I got records that are they're too good for anybody. Too good. You can't they're just, just be, too good. I'm not. You can't just be playing that at the at whatever. I mean, it's like it's like however many minutes long. It's an it's an opus. You can't just be dropping that casually. No, that's not. You want- and you can't sample it either. Oh God, no! I mean, you could if you're like a psycho. You could if you're a fucking asshole. I mean, I, I, there. You know what? And there are great records that I. I like I those people. I like those people. Just, just like find the best record ever and sample it. Oh, I mean, I, 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 I am that asshole. So I, I, I totally understand. I get it. But that's one that even I, I would not like begin to consider sampling. your closing record this is the last record you're ever gonna play maria ever i promise did i say don't leave me this way yes you did oh (laughs) that's so good yeah it's a it's a it's a solid choice it's a solid choice i listened to it this morning like just to get in the mood and oh yeah well of course there's there's well there's more than more than two there's There's a a bunch of there's a bunch of versions of of don't leave me this way I got to say that, and this says more about me than anything else, but I totally thought the Communards was the original like, growing <laughs> up. Like, I just thought, I'm like, fuck, they, they did it again. Jimmy Somerville, he's the best. Like, that was my original. I think it says a lot about where my, where my. Uh... I love that you thought that the Communards <laughs> did that. I, I, mean, I think I just thought they wrote this bomb. Um, nothing to do, nothing to do with Philadelphia or anything like that. <laughs> well. I do love that version, and I have played it. <laughs> However, I think that um, there is no finer version. And Thelma Houston's is great also. But you got to give it to the big man. Teddy. Teddy Pendergrass. <laughs> let me say this. Teddy passed away. He is still the finest man ever to walk the face of this earth. Have you ever watched a concert of him? I did, actually. There's a really did, not not live, but I've seen. I did get into it for a while. I watched some documentaries and stuff. Oh he yeah, was really there's that the great Teddy Pendergrass documentary. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. I think it's just called Teddy. I think um, I saw. That's the one I saw. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Uh, I mean, that whole uh, white tank top era of Teddy Pendergrass. Yeah. I remember just thinking it was one of those times you watch you watch a documentary. You're like, it's like that is full on man. Teddy Pendergrass, 1976. Can make a good dog break his leash. I mean, it's, he's it's something awesome. else. It's awesome. So, as a closing record, don't leave me this way. Yeah, well, because then it go, it go, it's, it's got kind of the traditional Philadelphia long arrangement, which is that the first two and a half to three minutes have the the radio record, and then then it goes into kind of a boogie section, mm-hmm. and then it recapitulates and does the sort of revisits the pop verses 
And then it goes into this kind of coda of, like, amazing funk. And I just, I don't think there's anybody that ever did it better than him. And I I think about him all the time still. The, the other day I was in the studio with uh, my friends Henny and Jen and we were trying to write this you know real like I'm really trying to work in like funk and stuff right now and really trying to grasp where I want to push things and what I want it to sound like and you know I just kept saying like this has to be like aggressive R&B <laughs> like mm. you know like turn them off you know like <laughs> that, that part and, and turn off a lot you know and I, I put on that video and the way that Teddy approaches the microphone and says, turn them off. It's the most amazing bar setting. They, they pan the crowds of the women in the audience and they are just, they are beside themselves. And <laughs> that, I mean, it's just, I, I, it's just, it's such an astonishing video. And I think that, his version and of course this is the time when a lot of people thought he was harold melvin because technically it's harold melvin in the blue notes okay right but nobody really knows who harold melvin is now um and so eventually teddy breaks out and does his own thing and becomes this massive star um but i think it's one of the best records ever made and i just don't think it gets any better the way that it goes from this sort of minor arrangement in the beginning and then hops into the into the major that's that's the moment don't leave me this way no it would be wrong So it's this reading up on on Gamble and Huff, right? The the Philadelphia oh, yeah. guys, the songwriters, the producers. They wrote or produced a hundred and seventy-five gold or platinum records. Boom. I was just like, that <laughs> And mean, they didn't that, have to tour. That no, but just the, every single thing about that is just the coolest thing ever. Anyway. Oh, they're 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 the baddest ever yeah that's that's just that's just that is just the baddest ever exactly you know like we all that's, have our little that, we all have the, our little ways of ranking how you know how everyone's doing but that is just anyway that's um, the baddest ever the baddest ever i want to ask you just quickly about like production when you hold a record like that in your mind uh, as an ideal or whatever and then you're making your record you know that that's that's tough you're talking about a level of performance a human level it's the bar is really high you know it's not quite the same as you know, if I'm like, shit, I want to make a Cabaret Voltaire record, it, it's, I can kind of see it, you know, even something like a craft work, you know, there's, there's cheats to get closer. I'm not talking about copying it, but, but emulating it. Something like Teddy Pendergrass and, you know, these like a Philadelphia classic like that. It's, it's kind of daunting, you know, like, Watch I mean, me. It, okay. Okay. Oh, wow. Whoa. <laughs> okay. Good. I mean, I think you have to say that you have permission to be, to be, you have to give yourself permission to be next. Yeah. And oh, I don't know. I, I'm a hundred percent, a hundred percent. No, no, I know you are. But like, there are people that know how to do that stuff. And 
somebody had to learn how to do it. And, you know, that's been the great thing about being stuck at home for a year, uh, is I had to learn how to track strings. I had to learn how to, I had to learn how to do all of that stuff. I started working one guy on the record, like, you know, he's like the percussionist for Gloria Stefan and Miami Sound Machine. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you got to go find that guy. Yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah, 100%. And talk to him about what you want to do. And the the wise thing about Gamble and Huff and Vince Montana and all those, and Quincy Jones, like, mm-hmm. arrangers, right? Because those are the people that I'm like, that's, uh, those people as good as they are as writers, they're also good about just bringing the right people into the room. So in my mind, you know, Teddy Pendergrass, whoever that is, is out there. Yeah. It's about the, it's the ambition to, to pull all those strings together. I guess the example I, I, when I say somebody like Cabaret Voltaire, obviously it's night and day because that's just like one or two people working in a room. You know, it's not, it's not that same level of collaboration. I have one, there's one track on this album that literally is like, 150 sections i don't know if it's going to be good <laughs> but um you know i'm i'm looking at things like that and looking at things like even even like arthur russell and mm. and all of that kind of stuff at, and thinking about you know th- those are the people that i've had in my mind and 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 other things too i mean you know also even like dumb shit like not dumb shit but things like you know like hall and oats why is that good why is this mm. good why why does this work why is Joe Smooth Promised Land, great. Why is oh, you know why are those oh. why are those things great? And but an, an, that, but analyzing it, going at one step further and trying to sure. solve the puzzle is is oh, is a, is a big day. step. Is a big step. It's good. It's really good. It's good you're taking that. It's good to take that approach. It's also you demystify it a little bit. I guess that's the thing. Actually, part of it is is seeing that even the best song in the world it can be deconstructed and there were real decisions and it was like, Oh, I'm going to get this person to play this part. You know, it isn't some just magic black box. They go through revisions. I mean, loose joints, uh, is it all over my face? Starts off with a terrible vocal on the first version. Mm. There's a male version and a female version. And in the male version, I like that record. In, in the male version, it's this sort of men's chorus going, is it all over my face? You've got me love dancing. Is it all over my face? You've got me love dancing. It's They're like, it's a wrap. Uh, we got it, guys. It's it's terrible. It's like the worst thing. And then Larry Man steps in. You get the new vocal, which is the woman, which becomes this iconic, perfect record. Mm-hmm. You have to both be egotistical enough to say that I'm capable of making a record that will go into the into the pantheon that will go into the canon and humble enough to understand that you're not going to be the only person involved with it. Okay, so you're the actual party here. I don't think you actually gave me answers this. You could do it on the fly maybe. Okay. So this is your actual party. Imagine it's the last one ever. Who opens for you? Who's somebody you trust as as an opening DJ or someone you really enjoy who sets the stage? Mike Servido. Okay. Yeah, Mike's dope. It's a guy. I only saw him play. I've I've only seen him play once. I remember he was one of those guys. The best thing I can say about a DJ is when I see a DJ and it makes me kind of happy. I'm a DJ. Yeah, Mike's Mike is a DJ's DJ. Like he doesn't he does he does do some production, but it's not like his primary directive. Mm. Mike is like like born to mix. Yeah, exactly. 
yeah, you come away from a feeling like I'm kind of proud to be part of this, you know. He's and he just, understands techno. He understands disco. He understands house. He's a brilliant technician. He's funny. Mm-hmm. He's cunty. He's uh, great energy. He never he never lets the pot boil over in a way that isn't good. He always kind of keeps it at this like mm. powerful low boil. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I love the, the, I love Mike. I think yeah. I think Mike's one of the best. Who, if I give you um, three VIP passes, right to your last party ever, you can invite three people, alive or dead. They hang out with you. Sylvester. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um. Liza Minnelli. Okay. And my dad. Great. Great choices. That's sweet. I love Liza Minnelli. I'm crazy about her. Did you ever hear that Pet Shop Boys album she did? No. Pet Shop Boys made an album for Liza Minnelli. Oh, no. I didn't even know that. It's fucking great. Really? Yeah. Is Liza Minnelli Judy Garland's daughter? Yes. Yes, right? I love Judy Garland. Oh, well, Liza's the disco version of Judy Garland. Oh, yeah. Liza's a big disco queen. I kind of forgot. Yeah, she was... Halston's mm. best friend, regular at Studio 54. The uh, the aftermath of your party. Who plays the after party? I mean, if that could also be Mike Servito, unless there's someone that you have. Oh, I want to play the after party. Really? Like the like the rare the rare ten hour set thing that I only do a few times. I I I would I would that it's me for sure. Um. So what would happen? This is kind of something that started as theory, and now there's a bit of truth to it. If it was all, if it was really, really all over with DJing and music and performing music as well, what would you do? Like all music. Yeah. You're not making music. You're not performing music. There's no music. I, I would go work for the Democratic Party. Oh, really? Like what? Like a... Like a speechwriter or a lawyer or something. Really? <laughs> I know that's not a, a very awesome answer. No, but no. Genuinely. No, trust me. It's a hell of a lot better than like... Every other DJ in the world who's like, I'd be a chef. Oh, yeah. You know, like, it's like mixing. It's like, I'm like, ah, it's poof. No, no, no. no. I, would, I, I would not be a chef. I would, <laughs> I, I, it would have to be some kind of intellectual thing. Or, or I would love to teach. Uh, mm. Sort of what I'd plan on doing was, I was either going, uh, initially I was meant to, to, to teach and then I started to do some of the stuff that is considered pre-law like I, I did all my Latin and all of that when I was in school um, so I would have either taught poetry or, or gone into law hmm. yeah the DNC thing politics thing that makes sense yeah okay Maria um, I guess that's it thank you very much thank you my dear have a, a nice trip to the country that's it baby last on earth did you enjoy that do you want more of that well i just so happen to have a solution if you want extended versions of every episode including bonus content sometimes 15 minutes longer sometimes an hour longer sometimes an entire extra episode things that are mind-blowing exposés, secrets, drama. If you want more of it, 
you sign up to my Patreon membership service. It is called Club Sexor. You go to www.patreon.com and you simply get more of what you already love. Extended bonus exclusive versions of Last Party on Earth. That's it. Enjoy. Enjoy.